The following is my conversation with Avi Loeb, a theoretical physicist who works on astrophysics and cosmology. Avi is the Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University. He had been the longest serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy from 2011 to 2020, uh, founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative since 2016 and director of the Institute of Theory and Computation since 2007 within the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Avi is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Science, the American Physical Society, and the International Academy of Astronautics. In July 2018, he was appointed as chair of the Board of Physics and Astronomy and the National Academies, which is the Academy's forum for issues connected with the field of physics and astronomy, including oversight of their decadal surveys. In June 2020, Avi was sworn in as a member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology at the White House. In December 2012, Time magazine selected Avi as one of the 25 most influential people in space. In 2015, Avi was appointed as a science theory director for the Breakthrough Initiative of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation. In 2018, he attracted media attention for suggesting that alien spacecrafts may be in our solar system, using the anomalous behavior of Amuamua as an example. In 2019, together with his Harvard undergraduate student, Amir Siraj, Avi reported discovering a meteor that potentially originated outside the solar system. Hi, Abhi. So I just recently, you've recently completed one year of the Galileo project. So it's like a mammoth thing that you're working on. Can you talk a little bit more about what the Galileo project is and what it aims to achieve? Yeah, so fundamentally, I'm a, a scientist. I'm an astronomer. And uh, in 2017, the first object from outside the solar system was spotted near Earth. Uh, and uh, it was unusual in its properties. It didn't look like a, a, an asteroid or a comet, the type of rocks we had seen within the solar system. I was intrigued by it. It had a lot of anomalies. For example, uh, most likely it had a flat shape and a very extreme shape. Uh, it was at least 10 times longer than it is wide when projected on the sky. And um, and it, then it was pushed away from the sun by some mysterious force without showing cometary tail. So I suggested that uh, it, it may be very thin and uh, not natural in origin, maybe artificial, like a light sail being pushed by reflecting sunlight. This object is called Oumuamua because it was discovered by a telescope in Hawaii. And uh, Oumuamua means in the Hawaiian language, a scout. So that brought me into uh, the whole realm of possibility that, in fact, we could have artificial objects produced by extraterrestrial civilizations that uh, would enter our backyard in the solar system. And uh, I wrote a book about it, Extraterrestrial, about Oumuamua and the anomalies that it has. And then, uh, together with my student in 2019, two years later, we discovered an object that was already in a catalog that the US government compiled of meteors. These are objects that the Earth collides with along its trajectory around the sun. So it acts like a fishing net. It collects objects, it collides with them, and they burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. And we found that in January 8, 2014, there was such a meteor that was moving very fast so that it was definitely not 
bound gravitationally to the sun. It came from outside the solar system, just like Oumuamua. And then uh, the government just half a year ago released the light curve of the fireball, the explosion that took place when the object burned up in the Earth's atmosphere. And from that, we concluded that, in fact, it had material strength stronger, tougher than iron. And it was tougher than all other 272 meteors in the catalog. So it was unusual, an outlier. And outside the solar system, it was moving faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. So once again, this object that was discovered almost four years before Oumuamua looked weird. It didn't look like the familiar rocks from the solar system. And um, then, <laughs> just today, we are about to submit a paper talking about another interstellar meteor. And that was discovered just before Oumuamua, half a year uh, before that. And it was also extremely tough. Uh, material strength number three in the catalog of meteors. So altogether, the first two meteors that were roughly the size of a meter appear to be outliers relative to rocks in the solar system. They are much tougher than all of the rocks. They're number one and number three in material strength. And the likelihood of that happening is less than one part in 10,000. So uh, it, it's clear that the interstellar objects, roughly the size of a meter, originate from something different than the solar system. We don't know what they are. And there is a possibility that they are spacecraft because a spacecraft would move faster than rocks and moreover could be tougher than rocks. So it raises a whole new possibility that we are being visited because we sent out spacecraft into interstellar space and there could have been a civilization that did the same a billion years ago. Most stars formed billions of years ago. And we, we tend to think that Albert Einstein was the smartest scientist who ever lived. But in fact, it's very likely that there was a smarter scientist on another planet around another star a billion years ago, simply because a substantial fraction of all the sun-like stars have a planet like the Earth, roughly at the same separation. So the dice of intelligence was rolled billions of times in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And if there was another civilization that predated us, they could have sent equipment into space that we would find around us. And it's just a question of looking. You know, you can say, just like Enrico Fermi said, you know, we don't have, where is everybody? Uh, we don't have any neighbors because I don't see anyone next to me. The point is that in order to find your neighbors, you need to look through your windows and you better use a telescope. And in this case, you better look at your backyard because there might be objects from the cosmic street that are in your backyard that will tell you something. You don't need to go to the neighbor neighbor's yard. You, you might just check your backyard. So I was really intrigued by this. And then in a, about a year ago, in June 2021, the director of national intelligence in the US released a report to the US Congress talking about objects that the intelligence agencies cannot identify. They call them unidentified aerial phenomena in the atmosphere of the Earth. So they do not think that they are associated with any other nation, with adversaries. They don't think they are natural objects, but they don't know what they are. So at, a month later, I decided to establish the Galileo Project. There were a few multi-billionaires that visited the porch of my home. They were inspired by my book, Extraterrestrial. And they decided to give me a few million dollars 
which en enabled me to establish a scientific project, the Galileo project, that aims to, first of all, understand those unidentified aerial phenomena the government is talking about, because the government wants to know what these are, and understand objects like Oumuamua or the meteors. So we are actually planning an expedition to collect the fragments from one of the meteors uh, in the coming year near Papua New Guinea. And so altogether, you know, it's a mission trying to figure out uh, whether we are being visited by objects from another technological civilization. That's the Galileo project. What What's the uh, possibility? Because like there are a lot of naysayers, even when you suggested that it's a it's tech possible technology and that that is something that we need to consider. You got a lot of pushback from your community or uh, your peers uh, said that, you know, that's just they kept disregarding it and then coming up with theories which were completely irrelevant because you were e easily able to disprove them. What is it about the uh, your community and your peers who just keep on, first of all, saying nay to everything, and then second of all, just not exploring? Like, w what has changed about like the intellectual community? Right. So my experience is not new, because if you go four centuries back, there was this experience of Galileo Galilei, and that's why we call it the Galileo Project. Uh, Galileo basically said, uh, you know, if you look through my telescope, you might uh, be convinced that the earth moves around the sun, that the, the earth is not at the center of the world, the way people thought at the time. And the uh, philosophers and theologians decided to put him in house arrest. Today, they would have canceled him on social media. They simply wanted his voice not to be heard because it bothered them, because everyone believed that we are at the center of the universe because that flatters our ego, you know. And so, he was put in house arrest, yet he established the foundation for modern science, which follows evidence. Science is supposed to follow data and evidence rather than prejudice, convictions. So we I would have thought that we learned an important lesson from that because we know now that the Earth moves around the sun. We can send the spacecraft that look at the Earth from a distance. So if you were to ask those philosophers to design a spacecraft that would reach Mars, they would never be able to do that because they thought that Mars moves around the Earth. So they would never reach the destination. So reality is whatever it is. It doesn't matter what people say. There is a reality out there and the Earth moves around the sun. And it doesn't matter if you put Galileo in house arrest. It doesn't matter whether you cancel him. It doesn't matter what you say. The truth is out there. And if you want to be intelligent, you better adapt to the reality that surrounds you rather than dismiss it and follow your ego. So I would have thought that by now we would learn the lesson, but apparently we didn't because whenever there is new evidence that is anomalous, like in the case of Oumuamua or these meteors, scientists today in academia behave just like those philosophers four centuries ago. They basically suppress the evidence. They don't want it to appear anywhere. They say, oh, no, there must be a lot of uncertainties. We don't know, really. They don't want to look through the telescope. In my case, the equivalent of that is when I'm raising funds to pursue a scientific inquiry into the nature of Oumuamua-like objects or the meteors, it's just doing science, trying to collect more data, more evidence. That For that, I get 
pushback. Even though the money comes from the private sector, from donations, it's not taken away from any other project. Yet scientists feel an obligation to dismiss it. Now, why would that be the case? After all, I'm just trying to collect data in an agnostic way, and the data may be very significant for the future of humanity. Because if we do discover that we are not the smartest kid on our cosmic block, it would change our aspirations for space. It would change our religious and philosophical beliefs. So why is it that people push back? Well, first of all, you know, among uh, peers within academia, there is jealousy. So if a subject could have important implications, so, you know, people have tendency to step on any flower that rises above the grass level. If you see something that is unexpected, unusual, very significant, you want to step on it so that nobody would get more credit than you do as an expert in the field. The second tendency, aside from jealousy, which is a very fundamental emotion, you know, you find it in academia everywhere. Out of jealousy, people just want to suppress anything innovative so that another person would not get credit. That is a very fundamental emotion. And then the second thing that operates is experts. When you are an expert, you worked for decades to establish a reputation and a status in your field that you know a certain body of knowledge that you have pride in you know, what was discovered until now. And you want to explain anything that comes along with the past knowledge that we have. So if there is something completely new that is an outlier that doesn't fit the paradigm, you have a problem with that because it threatens your ego. Here is something that your past knowledge cannot explain. You don't want it to exist, okay? You want it to go away. It reminds me of, uh, th there was a, a lecture about Oumuamua at Harvard University. And when I left the room after the lecture, a colleague of mine who worked on rocks for decades said, Oumuamua is so weird, I wish it never existed. And to me, that illustrates the point that experts want to explain. If they studied rocks in the sky, they explained every object in the sky as a rock. They want everything in the sky to be a rock from now to perpetuity, because that, mm -hmm. would, that would establish their uh, self-esteem in, in the sense of knowing how to explain anything we find based on past knowledge. So that is a very bad uh, quality for um, science. Because but, see, but even geniuses get it wrong. Like you've mentioned in the past that uh, uh, Albert Einstein was wrong about like, you know, a black hole and the gravitational wave. So how can you be so arrogant where you think you can never do anything wrong in the field that you're an expert in? Well, you are. Oh, how can I think that I can uh, stop? No, as in, as in someone who believes that, not you, because you yeah. seem to have no, that child-like so, curiosity. Uh, so, so the recipe is really simple. You follow the evidence, okay? So if there is something anomalous, that's what guides me. If there is something that doesn't quite fit to the paradigm, like, for example, you find the first interstellar objects, and they don't look like the rocks that you are familiar with. They look anomalous. They look strange. They have properties that represent the tail of the distribution. For example, in the case of the meteors, it's the material strength, which is very large compared even to iron. So if you see such things, I'm not saying you immediately conclude that you, know, you found something that is unexpected. It must be artificial in origin, but it should intrigue you enough to 
collect more evidence. That's what it should do. Rather than dismiss it, say that there must be uncertainties in the measurements, which is pretty much what happened. When we wrote the scientific paper about the first interstellar meteor, it was blocked by the referees of the paper. They said, we don't believe the US government data because they didn't release the uncertainties in the measurements. To me, that was obvious because the government has extremely good data. They need to know whether a ballistic missile would hit Boston or New York City, okay? So they have very precise data. However, they would not release the precision of the data because that would be used by adversaries to know something about the sensors that are used for national intelligence and national security purposes. So um, to me, it was obvious the data is good, but the paper was blocked for three years until the, you know, I managed to get people within government to send a letter from the US Space Command to NASA confirming, official letter, confirming at the 99.999% confidence that indeed this first interstellar meteor came from outside the solar system. So then three years later, our paper was accepted for publication. Now you ask yourself, is it always like that? Are people experts are always, you know, they want to be 100% sure no, you find papers using data that was collected by amateur astronomers hmm. everywhere in the literature. You know, amateurs report about supernova ex exploding stars, about some event. Nobody has an issue with that. But on this, the experts about, you know, rocks or meteors have a problem talking about something that looks different. They have a problem. So they say, I don't trust the data. Then the government says, at the 99.999%, I tell you that this, this is precise. Yeah. So then the paper gets accepted, but these people still, and there was a review that was posted today about mm -hmm. interstellar objects. And that review says, says in 1934, uh, there, were, there, there was a scientist who analyzed meteors and got it wrong many times. Therefore, we should not trust data on meteors claiming that they are interstellar. Now I ask you, how can such a statement be made in a review paper that will be published at the annual reviews of astronomy and astrophysics? Basically what it says is, if, you, if someone made a mistake a hundred years ago in measuring the charge of the electron, that means that any measurement of the charge of the electron that is done a century later should be in doubt. That makes no sense. Nowadays, we have much better instrument. And that appeared this morning in a review paper in the most major um, uh, journal of astrophysics and astronomy. The major journal has a review paper on interstellar objects. This statement is made to discredit the interstellar origin of the first interstellar meteor. And I ask you, how can that be regarded as a fair statement, saying that a hundred years ago, someone got it wrong. Therefore, you can't trust measurements today by the U.S. government using, using the most sophisticated state-of-the-art satellite data, ground-based sensors. What does the measurement from 34 have anything to do with measurements that were made a century later? Like, that's completely ridiculous. But that is the way that the discussion is going, you see? And it's completely unfair. It's not done in a cool-headed way where a scientist would say, oh, there is something interesting here, let's collect more data, which is the right way to approach it. Mm. You, you know, 
And the more data you have, the better the picture will get. So if you decide it's not worth your attention and you don't aim to collect more data, then obviously, you know, this will be pushed aside. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. People say, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, which is a statement that was made by Carl Sagan in the 1970s, which is a terrible statement. Why is it terrible? Because in my view, extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. You know, when we try to figure out the nature of dark matter, we don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. So we invest billions of dollars that was done already over the past several decades. We found nothing. No dark, no dark matter particle was found, but we invested billions of dollars. We didn't find anything. Nobody said, oh, searching for dark matter is an extraordinary claim, and therefore we shouldn't, you know, invest funds in it. We invested billions of dollars. We didn't find anything. So my point is, why not invest similar amounts of money on a question that is much more significant for the future of humanity? At the moment, there is zero funding, zero. So obviously, when you don't look, you don't search, it's you a self prophecy. You will not find anything. Mm. Speaking of uh, like, you know, being humble and having this approach to learning where you and also discovering where you like, you know, understand that you know nothing and you need to discover and find evidence for it. We seem to have like, you know, again, like your peers who keep saying there's nothing out there. And you re you've also said we are not alone or are we alone? Uh, these objects like the Muamua are like proof of it. And then we still like negate the fact that we need to like explore further there is pushback but then and you also mentioned that we are not the sharpest cookie in the toolbox or we're not the sharpest cookie what what claims do you have or like what are the reasons you believe that we possibly are not the sharpest possible life form available right so there are several reasons one you just do the statistics you know and it i think it's arrogant of us to think that we are the pinnacle of creation that we are the smartest that intelligence that was ever developed on a planet like the earth because we see billions of such i mean potential systems in the milky way galaxy alone and um and moreover there are a trillion galaxies like ours in the universe and most stars form billions of years before the sun so just a you know a question of numbers it just strikes me as an unusually arrogant view to claim that we are the smartest that ever existed, that there is nothing like us, okay? That's point number one. Second, we are not that intelligent. One reason I seek intelligence from space is because I don't find it very often on Earth. If you look at human <laughs> history, you know, you just see that uh, the biggest uh, disasters were inflicted by a group of humans trying to feel superior relative to other humans. And I think that, you know, if we search for intelligence in space, most likely we will find gadgets, technological gadgets, because right now we are developing artificial intelligence that would exceed our abilities within a, a decade. So mm -hmm. what we are likely to find uh, is equipment that is uh, that has artificial intelligence because it can survive long journeys through interstellar space that would last millions of years. I mean, uh, biological creatures like ourselves would just not uh, survive that long. And we were selected by Darwinian evolution to survive on Earth. So it's not we are not designed to go on journeys 
through space, but we can design artificial intelligence systems that would do that. And that's what we are likely to find in our backyard if someone else did it a billion years ago. So the point is that, um, you know, we, if we find evidence for a gadget that is far more superior than those technologies that we developed so far, you know, it will bring a sense of modesty. It will allow us to figure out that it makes no sense for us to feel superior relative to each other. You know, that, that makes no sense because there is a much smarter kid on our cosmic block. Okay, so, so the differences between us humans are meaningless. And so my hope is this will bring humanity together. You know, like people would feel, you know, there is no uh, need to feel superior relative to each other because there is something much more superior to all of us. It would also bring knowledge that we don't possess, you know, about science, technology, things that, you know, would take us thousands of years to develop ourselves. Perhaps they already did that. So we can learn from that. And I have no problem because it would allow us to leap in our technological abilities. So altogether, it's a, a, an extremely important question for us to figure out if there, is, there are any devices near Earth that belong to another civilization. And that search was never attempted until I established the Galileo project. It was never funded as a research, scientific research project. The US government has some data that looks weird, but, but there was never a scientific research project of this type. And that's, you know, that's the reason for the, the Galileo project. And I think that it deserves the same level of funding as other major scientific endeavors like you know the large hadron collider that try to find the dark matter like the the web telescope that looks at great distances let's check our backyard you know and for 70 years we some people were searching for radio signals but mm. this doesn't look like the right approach because radio communication was developed only over the past century so so why would we find another civilization exactly the same develop, uh, technological development uh, stage that we had over the past century? This is just one part in 100 million from the age of the Earth. So the chance of us finding another partner which is transmitting ex uh, with the same technologies as we use is, is really small, tiny, uh, in one part in 100 million. Uh, so um, it makes much more sense instead of searching for radio signals that escape uh, from the Milky Way galaxy to great distances, it makes more sense to look for equipment that was sent, let's say, with chemical rockets. That equipment will still be bound gravitationally to the Milky Way galaxy because it doesn't exceed the escape speed from the Milky Way. So, so the Milky Way is just like a basket collecting all of these all of these spacecraft that were sent over the past uh, billions of years, and we can look for them. You've spoken in the past about instead of looking for like signs of life, life like moisture, looking for space, uh, what's it called, pollution, like, you know, uh, CFCs and stuff like that. Uh, what would like, you know, and there's not enough funding in it because they, it's just not atypical. Like, why is there this uh, flaw in the way we are again looking for, like you said, uh, like archaeologists look for like, actual debris or uh, technological pieces outside in space to find proof of life? Yeah, so I think it's misguided. I think the current uh, search, of, uh, the, uh, the approach that the, the, the mainstream of the astronomy community is taking is, is uh, misguided because um, currently the astronomers are taking the most conservative 
uh, approach, basically saying, you know, it's most likely that we will find first uh, primitive life. And that means microbes. And how can we find that at great distances? Well, if we look for the composition of the atmosphere. So if we find oxygen and methane, that would indicate that perhaps there is primitive life. The chance of intelligent life is dubious. You know, it's very uncertain. We don't want to deal with that. We, it's too risky. The public is too interested in that. You know, we don't want to touch it. Because in the past, there, there was a lot of science fiction. There is a lot of excitement. Let's just distance ourselves from the public and be modest in the way we view what we might discover. Let's be, you know, let's expect the least, which is to say <laughs> primitive life was first on Earth. Therefore, we search for primitive life. Not We are the only ones that are intelligent as the zero assumption. Now, why is it misguided? Because the Earth developed oxygen in its atmosphere only after two billion years, at the middle of its life, even though there were microbes before that, okay? So if you don't find oxygen, it doesn't tell you that there is no primitive life because Earth is an example <laughs> where for half of its life, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere, yet there was life. And if you do find oxygen, it also doesn't tell you about the existence of life because there are other channels to make oxygen that are without life, devoid of life. So I say, suppose you find industrial pollution in the atmosphere. That's much more secure because then you know not only that there is life, but there is intelligent life because nature doesn't make these molecules that are produced by refrigerating systems, industrial pollution. So to me, it's possible that we would find intelligent life before we find primitive life, even though you might think, oh, it's easier to make primitive life. But it may be easier, but then the signatures of primitive life are more, more subtle, more difficult to detect. And for intelligent life, you know, there are two things you can think about. You know, for millions of years, humans were very, uh, a rather primitive civilization, you know, and, and um, so if we imagine another civilization that what that is representative of what we had for a few million years you know they live in the jungles of their exoplanet so for you to find them you need to go there land on the planet and start searching through the trees for those primitive civilizations that's that's a, a lot of work you know to get there will take millions of years then you have to land then you have to risk yourself then to, you have to communicate back what you find in the jungle that's very difficult. But if there is also a chance that they are much more advanced than we are, because, you know, other stars formed billions of years before the sun. So the clock started ticking for them billions of years earlier. So if you imagine exactly the same clock and you just started a billion years ago before Earth, then, um, then you end up with them being a billion years more advanced than we are. Okay. So what's the advantage of that? Instead of you going there, they will visit you, okay? So you just need to find their gadgets because uh, they can make their way through the entire Milky Way galaxy in less than a billion years. So it's very easy to populate the entire Milky Way, especially if you have probes that are equipped with artificial intelligence, 3D printing that they could be self-replicating and fill up the Milky Way galaxy in less than a billion years. So the only question is, do we live in a reality where we are being visited by such gadgets. They could be small, 
difficult to detect. Oumuamua was discovered just because it was the size of a football field. If it were much smaller than that, we wouldn't have enough reflected sunlight to see it. So there could be a lot of objects passing near Earth that we don't even notice. And my point is we just over the past decade started to detect interstellar objects. And even when we see them weird, I get a huge amount of pushback uh, <laughs> on, uh, because people want them to be rocks. They want, so there was, just to give you an example, there was a review paper about Oumuamua after it was discovered saying it is natural period. Okay, they said period, end of discussion, it's natural. That was a group of people that are considering themselves as experts on space rocks. Then a few months later, another team said, yeah, but it has some anomalies. So maybe it was a hydrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen hydrogen such that when it evaporates, you won't see the cometary tail because hydrogen is transparent. And the problem with that idea is that uh, hydrogen evaporates very quickly. So then another group said, oh, no, maybe it's a dust cloud, a cloud of dust particles that are very loosely bound, 100 <laughs> times less dense than air, that is being pushed by reflecting sunlight because it's very fluffy. And the problem with that is that it will get very hot when it comes close to the sun, hundreds of degrees, and disintegrate. So then another gr uh, group a few months later said, oh, actually, you know what? It's a nitrogen iceberg that was chipped off the surface of a planet like Pluto. The problem with that is there is not enough solid nitrogen. So my point is not so much about why each of these attempts to explain it as a natural object has a problem, but more about the psychology. How can a group of experts declare with an ex exclamation mark, it must be natural, and then three other teams write papers. And, you know, writing a paper is a lot of work. Three teams went into the work, the effort of writing papers, explaining Oumuamua in one way or another in, in, as a natural object. Why was it needed to write those papers if it was obvious to start with? And if it was obvious to start with for the people who wrote the review paper, why didn't they say it's a nitrogen iceberg, it's a hydrogen iceberg, or it's a dust bunny? They didn't say that. So my point is, it's unfair. The discussion is not sincere. The discussion is by experts uh, maintaining the view that it must be natural without having solutions for the anomalies. Why is it an uh, anomaly, like an anomalous uh, object, the Muawar? So, because, like, you know, these uh, intellectuals are like going through mental gymnastics just to prove that it's it's natural. Okay, but like, why do you say that you disagree with them? Like, what are the key things, the factors, like for a person who's like generally just understanding where you're coming from? Because um, in the case of Oumuamua, it, it had a very extreme shape, at least 10 times longer than it is wide when projected on the sky, based on the fact that as it was tumbling every eight hours, the amount of sunlight changed by a factor of 10. So you just imagine a piece of paper tumbling in the wind, the area that you see projected in front of you, if it varies by a factor of 10, that's a lot because it's very unlikely for you to see the piece of paper edge on so that it will be more than a factor of 10 in the change of the area that you, you see in front of you. So, um, and then the best fit to the variation of light was that of a flat object. We don't see flat pancake-like objects uh, made of rock. We don't see that. Uh, a factor of 10 is not seen. Usually it's up to a factor of three in projected area variations. 
then uh, there was this push away from the sun that uh, declined inversely with distance squared and uh, was not associated with cometary evaporation. We didn't see any cometary tail of dust and gas. So basically, all I'm saying is it looks anomalous. There are all these unusual features. There was another feature which it came from a very special frame of reference, which is the, called the local standard of rest which is a frame that you get to when you average over the motions of all the stars near the sun. And only one in 500 stars is so much at rest in that frame. The stars are buzzing by and the sun is one of them moving at 20 kilometers per second relative to that frame. So this object Oumuamua was so much at rest that only one in 500 stars is as close to it as it was in terms of its motion. And Therefore, it didn't come from the nearby stars. It, it was like a buoy sitting on the surface of the ocean and the solar system collided with it like a giant ship. And the, the question is why? Why does it have all these anomalies? It raises in my mind the possibility that it was artificial in origin. And the only way to find out is to discover another Oumuamua-like object. And we are planning to do that with the Galileo project. In a year, there will be a new telescope in Chile called the Vera Rubin Observatory, and it will monitor the sky much, with much greater sensitivity than the PanStars telescope in Hawaii that discovered Oumuamua. So uh, we expect to find every few months another object like Oumuamua. This is just like a dating app where, <laughs> uh, you know, most of the time we will swipe to the left. We will not be interested. But um, if we find an object as weird as Oumuamua, we might uh, go there and with a space mission and take a close-up photograph because they say a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, it's worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. <laughs> and I would much rather have a photo album, a collection of photos, uh, rather than write a narrative in a book. You know, it's, it's much easier you know, if you see, for example, the label made on exoplanet Y, or you <laughs> see the bolts and screws on an object, it's clear that it's not a nitrogen iceberg. It's clear that it's not a hydrogen iceberg or a dust bunny. And if it does look like a nitrogen iceberg, I will admit it, you know. So the point is, we just need better data rather than dismiss it and say it's an object of a type, it's natural, but it's of a type that we've never seen before. You know, that would be just like a cave dweller finding a cell phone. Some, uh, you know, a cave dweller is used to playing with rocks all of his life. If he would find a cell phone, he would respond just like my colleagues did, saying it's a rock of a type that we've never seen before, but it's a rock. And then, of course, if he's curious, he would press some buttons and realize that it records his voice, it records his image, then it will become clear that it's not a rock. Hmm. So my suggestion is, let's just get that evidence. I would love to press buttons on such an object. <laughs> Speaking of like, you know, pushback, there was a recent Chinese review study about, uh, that said that uh, no there's like almost like a sail with photons and it moves. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there was a paper trying to argue that uh, Oumuamua could not have been a light sail, a very thin object, as I was suggesting, that is pushed by reflecting sunlight. Well, mm -hmm. first of all, I should say that two years after Oumuamua was discovered, in uh, September 2019, uh, another object was discovered by the, the same telescope in Hawaii, PanStars, which exhibited the same qualities as Oumuamua. It was pushed away from the sun by reflecting sunlight and had no cometary tail. 
And then a few weeks later, the astronomers realized that it actually came from Earth. It was a rocket booster that was launched by NASA in 1966. And it was hollow. It had thin walls. That's why it had a large area for its mass. So it could have been pushed by reflecting sunlight. This object is called 2020 SO. And uh, uh, so basically, this object uh, behaved like Oumuamua, but we know it's artificial because we produced it. The question is, who produced Oumuamua? Uh, and, and so my point is that the Chinese people, uh, the Chinese group um, that wrote this paper was trying to argue, for example, that there would be a force pushing it to the side. It, like uh, if you imagine a sail, it could be pushed to the side if it's oriented sideways and it reflects um, light. But the point is that Oumuamua was not reflecting most of the light. It was mostly absorbing the light from the sun. Um, and if you just absorb the light from the sun, you just get a push away from the sun. It's only when you reflect most of the light that you get a push sideways. But if you just absorb the light coming from the sun, the only push that you can get is away from the sun. So they missed that point. Okay, mm -hmm. They argued, oh, it's unlikely to be a sail because it would have been pushed to the side. And I wrote to them and said, this is incorrect if the object is absorbing most of the light because it's mm -hmm. pushing it just away. From so that's point number one. Then they also argued that, you know... Uh, 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 it, it was if, if it were a light sail, it would have had, had uh, been pushed much more, would have been uh, designed in a different way. But my point is, we don't know its, in, its purpose. You know, it could have been just space trash. It could have been a, a, a layer of a bigger object that was torn apart and very thin, or like a rocket booster, like 2020 SO, this other NASA object. Hmm. So... Um, uh, we don't know the purpose. We shouldn't assume anything. It's just a, a physics question as to whether it could be a thin object pushed away by reflecting sunlight. Um, so they made some uh, statements that do not rule out that possibility. Uh, and um, I just disagree with their conclusion. Um, it, it looks like as if they had an agenda just to dismiss it. But, but the arguments they made um, are not really dismissing that possibility. And and the other people that looked into it uh, agree with me. You've recently spoken about like, you know, possibility that our civilization is just uh, something that's created from an extraterrestrial uh, life form where like, you know, we are just like almost a test um, civilization as so to speak. We want to talk a little bit more about that because I'm very curious about the possibilities that it opens up. Right. So, my point is that a very advanced scientific civilization, uh, by which I mean, imagine us a thousand years from now, okay, or a million years from now, it, we would be very different than we are today. You know, we had science and technology only for a century. And right now, in many technologies, including computers, artificial intelligence, you know, the, the, there is exponential growth on a timescale of only a couple of years. So that means if you imagine a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, or a million years from now, it, it's just you know, very difficult for us to conceive what we might look like and it would be like magic. So my point is, if you consider our future, 
uh, it could be a good approximation to what uh, people envisioned in the past as God, because we are already getting to the point where we might produce artificial life in laboratories. Okay, we are getting there. And that was a quality that was assigned to God, uh, creating life. So we are almost there. There are some laboratories around the world that are getting close to making artificial life in the lab. Okay. And suppose you imagine a thousand years from now, we will have a theory that unifies quantum mechanics and gravity. We might even be able to produce a baby universe in the laboratory. But just stepping back, even if we just are able to create the seeds of life, you can imagine us sending those seeds to other places, you know, habitable planets. And so it's possible that life was brought to Earth from another place. Uh, it's possible. Uh, we don't know if it developed organically here on Earth, uh, completely separate from any other place. I mean, uh, it could have come here by rocks that came, for example, from Mars. Maybe life started on Mars and we are all Martians. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, Mars lost its atmosphere. So life on Earth uh, stayed as the only form of life. Uh, but um, it could also be uh, directed. You can imagine targeting uh, habitable planets and sending life there, especially if you have the technology of producing the seeds of life. It's just like a gardener. You know, we, uh, if we have a garden in our home, we could put seeds in the ground and make plants, new plants that didn't exist before. And there is nothing magical about it. Uh, you could even nowadays uh, engineer technologically the type of plants that uh, make new plants that never existed in nature. That is possible already in agriculture. So imagine doing the same with the seeds of life and planting them in other planets. That's a possibility. And so, so that's what we have to keep in mind, that everything we think is well beyond human capabilities could be uh, possible with advanced science and technology in the distant future and someone else may have developed it already could we be like you know you had mentioned before like how you would recommend having a backup over like you know on mars or another planet so we could be the backup for another civilization somewhere like it can go in reverse as well what do you think of yeah that? except um, i think we are not a very good backup because um, <laughs> if, you, if you look at the uh, daily news you know we are very susceptible to destroying ourselves i mean there are so wars around and uh we just don't treat each other with respect i just wouldn't think of us as a good backup but as a result of that, I do think that when we go to the moon and you know that NASA has this Artemis uh, program to go back to the moon to establish a human base there. Uh, my recommendation is to put um, a backup system there, just like, you know, I bought a new laptop uh, where, you know, together with the laptop, I bought a, a backup and recovery system that basically copies everything I have on the laptop. And if something bad happens to it, I can easily recover that. So I suggest doing the same thing on the moon, uh, basically storing all the information that is precious to us here on Earth, such as all the books that were ever written, all the music that was ever written, all the important you know, uh, developments in human history, all the DNA uh, data that we have on all forms of life. You can imagine storing it 
on a database on the moon, such that if a catastrophe happens on Earth, whoever is on the moon will be able to reconstruct uh, and recover uh, important parts of the human civilization. I'm just saying, you know, for there's no for, harm in it. Yeah. So but my concern, though, is there like, you know, dinosaurs were there. They were not as intelligent as us. And then they completely wiped off. And if even if we were to have like a backup, there were Aztecs and the pharaohs who kind of somehow tried to like, you know, preserve their intellectual information. And it was still lost on us. So would there be some way to also for us to decipher our information that we back up? Because again, and also that, that's one question. Second part of my question is that if an asteroid were to come and like, you know, completely wipe off our civilization, do we have a plan in place or should we? How important right. is it? Yeah. So for the first question, I would say if the people who recover the information and use it, uh, are uh, humans, as, as expected in the case of a base on the moon or a base on Mars, they would know what to do with it because they are familiar with what existed on Earth. It's just, it's just like opening a recipe book. You ate a cake that you really liked once, and then if you want to reconstruct that cake, you just need the recipe book. Okay, and so mm -hmm. that is the idea of the backup. Uh, with respect to the, well, for, uh, with respect to the catastrophes, uh, they could be self-inflicted. It could be that humans, for example, develop a virus in uh, some bio lab that is much worse than COVID-19, you know, and then spreads. And so the thing about the viruses so far is that they were uh, either limited in their dam, you know, they killed a small fraction of the population or they spread too slowly to inflict everyone. But just imagine a future where there is a virus that spreads very quickly and that uh, kills everyone, like uh, after a delay. Uh, and, uh, you know, that could kill humanity. Uh, so there could be a catastrophe of that type. There could be an asteroid hitting the Earth, you know, just like uh, in the case of the dinosaur. We are trying to be more intelligent than the dinosaurs and develop telescopes that would warn us about an incoming uh, uh, asteroid and in fact uh, NASA is now uh, planning in a week uh, uh, to collide with an asteroid and deflect it just to show that you can in principle do that uh, there will be this mission called DART that uh, is coming up um, and uh, so altogether you know there are various types of risks it doesn't have to do with an alien uh, invader I don't think I'm not really afraid of extraterrestrials because if they wanted to do some damage and prevent us from developing the technologies we have they would have done it long ago we were much more vulnerable earlier on so they would not wait for the last minute and the fact that nothing happened to humans from outer space to me is an indication that nobody cares uh, we are not <laughs> that that important you know once again we tend to think that it's all about us but it's not and then um, that's, you know, that's the kind of modesty that I'm trying to advocate for that, you know, we are just like ants on a sidewalk. And, you know, if a biker passes by, the biker doesn't care about the ants. You know, we uh, we can develop any protocol we want. It's just like the ants deciding how to interact with the biker, but the biker doesn't care, you know. And um, uh, so uh, to answer your other question, we don't have a protocol. If we find a visitor in our backyard, we need to decide immediately how to respond. And 
at the moment there is no organization that represents humanity because all we thought about is what happens suppose we detect a signal a radio signal from far away that takes you know thousands of years to traverse interstellar distances then of course we have a lot of time to think about it to decide what to do but imagine a visitor in your backyard you have to respond immediately and at the moment we don't have a protocol for that would maybe a part of the galileo project be where you like you know consider that and see what steps we can take yeah so we do have a, a, a subgroup within the galileo project that is focused on societal implications um but the real focus of uh, this project is first to find evidence that indicates that we are being visited fair enough do you think we have been visited like you know not not like on evidence based because there uh, there are some like commander favors uh, the like the the videos that have come out there's also I, i'm not sure if you know uh, but like bob lazar he yeah. had like he used to work in the los almos lab and like i don't know how much credence you put on no so okay first of all i should say uh that humans are not scientific detectors you cannot write a scientific paper based on eyewitness testimonies um in principle people can be put on in jail uh if uh, eyewitnesses testify in the law uh, the court of law you know that happens but in science the evidence is held to a higher standard it has to come from instruments that uh, provide quantitative data i cannot write a scientific paper saying this person bob lazar said that that makes no that is not credible and because people are subjected to hidden agendas they have motivations they have ulterior motives they have hallucinations all kinds of things and modern science the way it's done is based on data collected by instruments so we have to collect quantitative data with instruments that have no emotions no egos no ulterior motives and that can be reproduced if you use the same instrument under similar circumstances you'll see the same thing you know that's a part of science so that's the way the galileo project will operate i don't you know i was approached by many people who tell me you know they experienced this and that and i try to cl clarify that i had a commentary in medium uh, just a couple of months ago saying that humans are not scientific detectors so just forget about what humans tell us there is a lot of uh, uh, superficial uh, data that is uh, fuzzy images obtained by cell phones that is not convincing and it doesn't matter whether you have a million cell phones giving you a million fuzzy images there are still fuzzy images i don't want a million fuzzy images i just want one high resolution <laughs> image and if i had that then i could analyze it but when people say oh there are so many cameras looking at the sky that's completely irrelevant because they don't provide good data fair enough what would you say to someone who is wants to go down your path and like be as curious as you are someone who's young and just like you know hoping to discover something that no one else has yeah so i would say you know the the most devastating experience i had as a kid was at the dinner table where i would ask a difficult question and the adults in the room would dismiss it simply because they didn't know the answer or they wanted to pretend that they know much more than they can they they actually know 
And I thought that by becoming a scientist, I would maintain my childhood curiosity and could ask questions. But what I find is exactly the same experience. I find colleagues uh, pretending to know more than they actually know and dismissing the question when they don't have a good answer. Okay, so my advice is science is supposed to be driven by childhood curiosity. You are not supposed to pretend anything. You are supposed to collect evidence and be guided by it. And I would argue that uh, kids should not abandon their childhood mentality. They should not surrender to the adults in the room and they should keep it because I'm a, a, a proof that it's possible, okay? Uh, and it's not a, a question of how many likes you get on Twitter or social media. I often tell young uh, people that, you know, um, when you go to the beach, you see seashells that are swept ashore. And when they are relatively recent, the, you see the unique colors and shapes of those seashells. But after a while, the waves from the ocean rub them against each other and they basically lose their color and they break up into indistinguishable grains of sand. Okay. And I say to the young people, don't rub against each other <laughs> on social media. Keep your unique colors. Keep asking questions and, and doubting and, and questioning, you know, the dogma and, and the prevailing paradigm. And if people don't have good answers, just don't follow them and find the answer yourself. Okay. And it's really important to maintain your unique colors, your unique shape, and not surrender to the herd mentality by rubbing against other people, by wanting to be liked. That's not really the goal. The goal is to figure out what reality is like. That's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs>